Good morning, I'm Pastor Matt. I'm glad you're here. Actually, would you tell the person you're sitting beside, I'm glad you're here. Glad you're, I'm glad you're here. All right. We have the great privilege every Sunday to look at God's Word together, and one of the ways that we like to walk through God's Word is to kind of go book by book and to see God speaking to us through His Word. So uh, I want to invite you to open up in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. If you need a Bible, there's uh, Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. You can use them this morning, and if you don't have one, take it with you. Uh, the Bible is broken up into two major uh, divisions. Uh, one is called the Old Testament, one is the New Testament. The Old Testament is about three-quarters of the Bible, and it uh, teaches about God's relationship primarily with the people of Israel, but also pointing ahead to the promised Redeemer. And that Redeemer is Jesus Christ, and when he comes, he inaugurates this new relationship, which is why we call it the New Covenant, which is also why the book is called the New Testament. And in the New Testament, when we hear about Christ has come, the Savior has come, he has saved his people, and he talks about what does it mean to live in relationship with this God who has saved through his son Jesus. And one of those books that plays out what does it mean to walk with God is the book of Hebrews. And we've been walking through it. And we're, we're hitting a, a, a kind of a major transition verse. We're actually in the home, we're in the home stretch. You, we're, we're, in, we're in the therefore section. That's the first word there in your English translations. This is, a, this is a turn for applying the truths that have been laid down in the first 11 chapters. So we're in the home stretch. So speaking of the home stretch, uh, there's a world, uh, world-class race car driver by the name of Kuno Whitmer. Kuno Whitmer. I think there's a picture of him uh, in this... Um, so he, he, he competes in various sorts of motorsports. He has over 24 top 10s. He has six victories. But there's one second place that he'll never forget. So in 2019, uh, Whitmer had this commanding lead over the second place finisher, or the second place car, Robin Liddell. Kudo's lead was so large, he figured it would be fun to activate the radio and congratulate the team on the home stretch. But Kuno did not hit the radio button. Instead, he pushed the pit road speed limiter, instantly slowing the vehicle to almost like a crawl. And it gave, and it gave Kuno a great uh, view of Robin Liddell passing him and getting the checkered flag. Now, Kuno Whitmer would have other races to race. But the Bible uses a metaphor for our lives about we get one race. One race that we're on. And, and Christianity uh, rejects uh, doctrines like reincarnation. There's no second lives. Uh, there are no future lives. There are no second chances. There's this life. There's this race. And it's all on the line. And Hebrews 12, 1 through 17, this writer is going to hold out truths to help us finish the race. Okay, I, I, but if you're, if you're coming into this book late, or just to, just to remind you of where we are in this book, why did it come? Let me, let me set the stage. Um, this writer penned this book to a church that was in disarray. There were um, doctrinal confusion permeating within the church. There was outside external opposition 
to this church. There was internal corruption that was spreading. And all of these various circumstances led to some people walking out on the faith, uh, leaving Christianity. Uh, The term for that is apostasy. Uh, Spiritual apostasy, it's the disaffiliation or the, 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 uh, the exit out of the Christian faith. Now, in the first century, this particular audience, they were uh, mostly leaving to go back to Judaism. Uh, these are mostly Jewish Christians, and that's why this book is laced with a lot of references to the Old Testament. Uh, but why were they turning to the Jewish faith? What was the lure to going back to Judaism? One, uh, Judaism had a special status in the Roman Empire. You could be a practicing Jew and avoid persecution. One of the lures of Judaism is is it was tangible. It was visible, which is partly why a lot in Hebrews 11, it talks about trusting this God you cannot see. But this risk of apostasy comes up in every every century, every every, uh, 20 years, every five years, every five minutes. So just take a step back and think about what is what is the 21st century religious status that's okay? Right? There's, there's some that are more culturally, uh, cultural uh, beliefs that are okay. Right? If you kind of have your mix and match, hodgepodge religion, you're probably okay culturally. Or if you have no religion, you're okay culturally. And so there's, there's this temptation or this lure to find a, the religion that's approved by your society or something that feels more tangible, something that has more practices or more ways of kind of knowing, how am I doing? Am I moving up the ladder? And so when we read this letter, it's to say, remember, there's one race to run. And there's only one way to succeed. So here's my bottom line main idea walking through this text. It's going to be this. Run together through the Father's trials with our eyes out for one another. Run together through the Father's trials with our eyes out for each other. So we'll break up the text. We're going to look at the first three verses just about the race we're to run together. And we're going to talk about our Father's meaningful trials. And then we're going to talk about eyes out for each other. So To begin, I just want us to look at verses 1 through 3. I want you to know, friends, we have a race that we're supposed to run together. We have a race that we're supposed to run together. Listen to the first three verses here. The writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So what this writer is doing, in some ways, he's, he's peeling back the curtain and he's giving some heavenly perspective on our earthly race. When we walk through chapter 11, the, the writer had spoken about these heroes of the faith who have now passed on into heaven. And these heavenly heroes, they serve as examples, they, they're witnesses, and even now spectators in the race that 
we're running. In verses 1 and 2, there's really only one main verb, one driving verb, and it's the, it's the verb run. Christian, be moving. Be moving forward. And then he gives four qualities to the running. Run with these four qualities. One, run with the witnesses in mind. Two, run by ridding yourself of all hindrances. Three, run laying aside sin's entanglement. And three, run with your eyes on Jesus. Run with your eyes on Jesus. So this first idea is run with the witnesses in mind. That is, as you run, be inspired by the faithful men and women who have run before you. Right? So in Hebrews chapter 11, run like Noah ran. Run like Rahab ran. Run like Abraham ran. Run like Sarah ran. Were any of these people perfect? No, but they, they ran in faith, trusting in the Lord, ultimately receiving a prize that they didn't receive on this earth. Keep them in mind. I'd encourage you also, run with the people who have run before you, who have been a part of your spiritual journey. I want to run with my grandma Marianne in mind. I want to run with the man who invested in me in the navigators, Ron Shimkis. I want to run like Ron run, dying on the mission field. I want to run. So keep those witnesses in mind. Second, run in this race by getting rid of any sort of hindrance. Throw off any weighty thing. Now the cultural meaning when it talks about these first century hindrances in the race was primarily closed. Right? Because if you ran a race in this time period, you stripped down and you ran. Brothers and sisters, there's some times where the Bible is to be taken literarily, not literally. This is a good example. Literarily, apply this verse. Don't literally... Strip down, please. No one looks good naked. I don't care what people say. But it's saying, though, in order to run this race, you need to be aware that there are hindrances. There are weighty things. Uh, For some of that's going to be worldly ambition. That's going to be, for some, it'll be wealth or hobbies or fame. The famous uh, evangelist and founder of Methodism, John Wesley, uh, one time was shown this vast plantation by a very proud landowner. They rode their horses all day, and they actually only saw a fraction of the estate. And when they sat down to dinner, the man said eagerly, Well, Mr. Wesley, what do you think? And Wesley pondered the question, and then he said, I think you're going to have a hard time leaving all this. So what, just ask yourself, what hinders you to live a life of faith? What distracts you from meditating on God's word? What keeps you from going before the Lord and pouring out your heart to him in prayer? Throw off such things. The writer says, run. The witnesses are watching. Get rid of these, these hindrances that get in the way of running by faith. And then third, it says, run laying aside the sin that so easily entangles. If you look closely to verse 1, it's correctly translated. It says, the sin. Most likely, it's not talking about some sin in general, like any sort of sin that could possibly entangle you. It's talking about the sin. And as we've read through the book of Hebrews, the sin that can entangle you is apostasy. 
the threats, the, the pressures to walk away. Don't put that, like, it's got to be not an option. You know, my wife and I have been married, uh, knocking on 19 years. Like, divorce is not an option. Some of you guys remember when uh, Ruth Graham, people said, have you ever thought about divorcing the famous evangelist Billy Graham? He, she said, divorcing him? No, killing him, yes. Right? What I'm saying, though, when it's saying throw off the sin that, that could entangle, is like leaving Jesus Christ is not an option. How do I know that that's the sin? Well, if you jump down into verse 4, he writes, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So in your struggle against the sin of apostasy, the, the persecution that would tempt you to leave, you aren't even bleeding yet, he says to this first century church. And yet you're still thinking about walking out on the Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, run, laying aside that idea of unbelief. Christian persecution so far hasn't ended in martyrdom for these first century churches. It doesn't even sound like it's ended in physical altercations or the shedding of blood. And yet, they were tempted to walk out in unbelief to apostatize, to avoid the suffering, the shame, the stigma. This is some hard work, and this is the stuff that you, you don't just solve sitting in a sermon. And this is the work that you got to go to the Lord by yourself and even pray, Lord, am I at the place where I know that abandoning you is just, it's not even on the table. I'm going to hold on to you no matter how hard it gets, no matter how shameful it might become, no matter how much blood might be shed. Jesus is worth it. Because most American Christians, we have not yet suffered to the point of shedding blood. I mean, for most of us, the, 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 the extent of the persecution that we have received is like raised eyebrows. Or maybe not an invite to the party. Or maybe some little snide, snide remark on Facebook. And yet for many people, this has been the undoing of their faith. They're like deconstructing their whole faith because a few people don't like them. And yet the Bible is, has all sorts of warnings. Here's one, 2 Timothy 3.12, where it says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So there's, I mean, just that one verse we could preach a whole sermon on, but if you don't want to live a godly life, you probably won't be persecuted. You just won't. You want to be ungodly and worldly? No one's going to persecute you for that. You'll be welcomed and maybe get a few extra party invites. If you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, there will be persecution. Now John Wesley, actually, if he'd spend a couple of days not getting persecuted, he'd actually ask himself, have I been walking with God faithfully? We don't want to trip into apostasy. We don't want to walk into apostasy. We're going to throw that off. But the fourth quality of how we run is given the most ink because it is the most important. Verse 2 says we fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Run with your eyes on Jesus. 
And all of those faithful people in the past, they can encourage you, but they can't empower you to hold fast. So remember them, let them encourage you, let them inspire you, but it's keeping your eyes on Christ, worshiping him, trusting him, seeking him. That's how we're to run. Who is this Jesus? And just in this short little verse, do you see all the things that it tells us about Jesus? He's the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. The idea is the pioneer of faith. That is, he's the one who grants you faith. He's the one who gives you faith. He's the author of faith. It's a supernatural, wonderful gift that God grants. And he's also the one that perfects it. He's the one that's going to allow it to finish. Uh, some of you guys know Philippians 1, 6. You know, he is the one who's going to carry you on to completion. You're not going to carry yourself. He'll do the work. But we have to fix our eyes on him. And what does it say we're supposed to focus on, right? Just in verse 2. Remember, for the joy, he endured the cross. He went to the cross of Calvary for the sake of joy. He knew that there would be more long-term joy in the sacrifice on the cross to save people than to avoid it. Nails did not hold Jesus on the cross. Jesus had the power to take his life, and he laid it down. No one else did that. Sovereign authority over his body, and he's like, I give you permission to take my life. It says that he endured uh, the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. What do you say? What it's saying there is the shame and suffering of the cross were trite things in comparison to what he was doing on the cross to procure the forgiveness of sins for sinners. It was trite, it was little. Kind of laughed at the suffering. Like, this is small compared to what I'm doing to honor my Father and save my people. And where does it end up at the end of this verse? He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Remember, I said the heavenly curtain is being exposed so you can see in. Jesus is sitting and reigning in heaven. He's not rotting in a cave. His body still has never been found, and they ain't finding it. (laughs) The first century people, uh, that culture, if someone died, they'd make shrines around their their grave sites. It didn't happen in Christianity because he didn't have one. He'd risen from the dead. They worshiped a resurrected Savior, and he's now reigning so when you're tempted to throw, out, throw in the towel, look to Christ, the reigning Christ. He's not the dead Christ. He's the ruling, reigning Christ. Verse 3 kind of pulls these together. It says, consider him, right? meditate on him, ponder him, because he endured such opposition from sinners. But do it so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. There's an empowering power to meditate on the cross. That's why there has always been some value that in church history, they set us aside like Holy Week and and Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. Like We don't have to celebrate those days. There's no special days of the year in the Christian that's required. But church history and church history says, let's focus on his death. Let's remember his resurrection because it'll help you endure. It'll help you persevere. So brothers and sisters, we have a race to run. And when I say we, 
I mean we. All of the, the verbs here, all of the imperatives, they're all plurals. I mean, this, these are, this is one of those passages that sometimes like athletes put on their shoes. You know, run the race. That's what cross country, Christian cross-country runners do if they're really godly ones. But it's, it's a y'all run. We're running this together. Turn to the person on your left. Say, I'm running with you. I'm serious. Turn to your person on your left. I'm running with you. We're in this together. It's not unlike how cycling teams work in the Tour de France. These cyclists will ride almost side to side to provide this break from the wind. And whoever is tired has permission to fall back just a little bit to get a little bit of a break till they get enough energy and then they kind of go to the front. That's how the Christian life is to be run. We run together. And sometimes when I'm tired, I got to tell the brothers and sisters, I'm, in, I'm down. I mean, I'm broken. Would you carry me? Will you, will you help <laughs> break wind for me? Sorry. <laughs> I was a youth pastor for four years. But you, we need that help with one another, but we run it together. This is a race we need to run together. So let's do that. Let's do it well. Uh, but we have more to do than just running. And so that's going to move on to this second idea. The, the moment you, you commit to, to, to running this race, there are going to be bumps and bruises along the way. Just when you have like this courage to live for Christ, suffering strikes. Just when you're motivated to speak the gospel to a friend, that same friend wants nothing to do with, their, with her uh, Jesus freak pal. And yet, the, the writer is aware of that. And so we're going to run this race together, but I want us to know it's always through our Lord's meaningful trials. They're coming, and the Bible tells us about them. Uh, if you run into someone that they say the Bible promises health and wealth, in this life, say they're telling, not telling the truth and then go find a different church or turn the channel. Because my Bible says trials are coming. I already read verse 4. Let's jump into verse 5. Listen to this. You're running this race. Trials are coming. In verse 4 it says it wasn't to the point of shedding blood, but it's still hard. And then the writer says, but have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement? that addresses you as a father, addresses his son. It says, my son, do, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chases everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Friends, you need to know there is no such thing as meaningless suffering. There is no gratuitous evil in the world. 
Evil can only go as far as the leash that God has given evil. Recall the book of Job. Job was this faithful, righteous man, and Satan could not touch him without God's permission. Now, admittedly, just because we believe there is no such thing as needless suffering, that doesn't mean we always know the meaning, nor does it mean it won't hurt. Still, our writer takes all of these verses to assure the Christians, you're God's children, and the Father loves you, and he never ultimately harms his children. He always has a purpose. In fact, it's always a good purpose, even if it's persecution of your faith. That's the context. They're being persecuted for their faith. God's using that? God determined that to happen? If you just want to turn back in your Bibles, I was thinking of this passage in 2 Samuel 16 this morning. Uh, This is about David, King David, who is the Lord's anointed king, potentially the greatest king in Israel's history. But there was a season in his life that one of his sons was trying to do a coup and get David thrown out, maybe even killed. And David is on the run. In 2 Samuel 16, verse 5, it says, As King David approached Bahurim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. I just want you to get the image here. This man is cursing David, and he's throwing stones, and the writer includes that David is surrounded by the secret service. He's doing all these things, and the big bad boys of David, they're right there. And as he cursed, Shimei said, Get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Then Abishai, you want to do a character study, he... Abishai, is a, is a, he likes his blood. He likes his fighting. <laughs> then Abishai, son of Zariah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. That's the kind of friends you want. I'm oh, sorry. But the king said, and what does this have to do, you son of Zariah, if he is cursing because the Lord said to him, Curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? And David then said to Abishai and all his officials, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. David understood that even God can send someone to curse the anointed king. That's faith. Now again, you might say, okay, Pastor Matt, I can read what you're reading, but it's not what I'm experiencing. Suffering doesn't feel good. Uh, Persecution isn't making me love God. It just hurts. And so did such a concern, let me just give two words of instruction. Uh, First, though God only brings good suffering, 
that doesn't mean we all do well during suffering. Did you hear that? Just because God only brings good suffering, it doesn't mean we do well through the suffering. Uh, English scholar Raymond Brown writes this, Our tribulations can bring us a far deeper experience of the continuing and dependable love of God. It can. God wants our good, but we can misuse our seasons of suffering. We could pray, we could persist in obedience, we could be like David that just says, the Lord's in this, I'm just going to trust him and entrust him to be the one who brings my comfort. We could continue to praise God. I think such faith pleases God and we're going to receive some of the good, maybe even literally see some of the good happening even in the midst of tragedy. But there are enough warnings in Scripture that if we complain, if we disengage, if we try to distract ourselves, we shouldn't expect to know the good. We might miss out on the good that the Lord intends. Second idea is only though God only brings good out of suffering, it doesn't mean we're going to all perceive the good that he's doing in this life. We might, we might, just, we might never know exactly what in the world the Lord is doing. You might have no idea why God let you go through that 10 years of alcohol addiction that brought a lot of pain and suffering to your family. You might not never know. You might know. You might learn that 10 years later, you get to walk with another family that faces the same crisis, but you might not know. You might not know why cancer struck you or why you lost a child. Maybe it was to humble you. Maybe it was to help you be more compassionate to those who are suffering. Just a quick pastoral word of vacation of uh, application. It's sometimes hard to know why God is putting me through suffering. Let us be careful to explain to other people while they're suffering. <laughs> Does that make sense? It's hard for me to know why God might be putting me through suffering. It's going to be even harder. You know, so the whole, oh, I bet God's doing this so that you can learn patience. Maybe. But you can listen, and you can love, and you can remind people of the truths that God doesn't send meaningless suffering. But let's not tell them things that probably only God knows. God is always bringing good, even if we don't see it. You know, one example I thought of, too, is in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, uh, Moses is speaking from the Lord and asking, why didn't... Israel, when God was giving the promised land, why did they get it immediately? You said we were going to get the promised land. It sure seems like it's taking a long time, God. And the Lord explains it in Deuteronomy 7.22. It says, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you, but only little by little. You will not be allowed to eliminate them all at once, or the wild animals will multiply around you. Think about that. God knew that a slow conquest with blood spilled and battles waged was actually better than an immediate victory because it would have been worse. God knows what he's doing. He really does. And by the way, I don't. <laughs> you don't. <laughs> and this is probably what it means to walk by faith, to hear the promises, see the heart of God. If you ever doubt that God loves you, though, if you ever doubt that God loves you, remember the cross. Remember the Christ. I love the hope that's in verse 10. So I just want to spend a little bit of time on this and then we'll move to the, the last section. 
Verse 10 says this, God disciplines us for our good in order that we might share in his holiness. This is, a, this is one of those mind-blown sort of verses. What is God's holiness? God's holiness throughout Scripture, it's his intrinsic character. Holiness is what makes God, God. And, it, and this verse says that the discipline of the Lord invites us to share in God's holiness. There is an experience of the uniqueness of God in suffering and in discipline that you will not have without it. It reminds me where it talks about in 2 Peter that we read that God allows us to participate in the divine nature. Right? This, is, this is bigger than our physical senses. This is worshiping God in spirit and truth. This is a, a, a connection to, the, to the, the holy God that is only made possible through suffering that you're not going to experience it in your senses. I think a lot of us, I'm not, you know, you've heard me talk about this. Like, I love going to the top of mountains and just be like, oh, the creator of God is so awesome. And that's cool. But some of the experiences of God, it, it's beyond physical. It's, uh, I know a guy who uses the term, it's transrational. It's not irrational, but it's transrational. It's spiritual. It's beyond the senses. God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in our holiness. Our earthly woes open a door to heavenly transformation beyond our wildest imagination. And then it goes on to say that this heavenly experience, this taste of God and his holiness, will then spill out in verse 11. It says there'll be a harvest of righteousness and peace to those who have been trained by it. And I'm guessing if you've been in the church for a while, you know those people that the harvest of their life is a righteousness and peace that's beyond their physical circumstances. They are harvesting things from heaven here in this earthly world that wouldn't have been possible without for God. A peace in the midst of cancer. A hope in the midst of war. That's what it means to live and walk by faith. That's what it means to run the race through the Father's meaningful trials. But there's one last piece. We're going to run together through Father's trials with eyes out for each other. Look back into Hebrews 12. I'm now in verse uh, 12, 12, 12. It says, Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. He goes on in verse 14. He says, make every effort. By the way, these are all plural commands. <laughs> make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau, who for a single meal he sold his inheritance, the rights uh, as the oldest son. And afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. In verses 15 and 16, it uses this expression, see to it. Uh, it could be translated something like watch over. It's actually the same sort of verb to describe what a pastor is supposed to be doing or an elder team is supposed to be doing over the whole church. That is to provide a faithful watch, to oversee, to take care of one another. But this passage says this sort of care and caution and support we're, we're, supposed to, we're supposed to offer to one another. 
It's not just the pastor's job. It's our job to help see to it that no one falls short, that we all make it. Uh, look at how he started in verses 12 and 13. It talks, this, first it talks directly to us. Uh, still it's a y'all, but it says, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Right? It's saying wherever we find ourselves spiritually weak, we have a personal responsibility to grow and see ourselves strengthened. I've been convicted lately that I need to grow in prayer. I do. I'm really, I'm convicted. But I got to quit making excuses. I need to find ways to grow stronger in prayer. If you, say if you're weak, maybe in sharing your faith, how do you strengthen your feeble arms? If you're weak in the area of Facebook or tobacco use, you take responsibility to find freedom in Christ. There's this, there's this call to take care and command over our own spiritual growth. We, we quit blaming others. We, we grow up. We find a, mem, a mentor. We ask a pastor. We, we go to our small group and say, I need help. That's the first step in, in every great recovery program, to say, I have a problem. But take responsibility. And yet at the same time, look what it says in verse 13. So verse 12, strengthen yourself. Verse 13, though, make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. We need to keep our eyes out for those who are spiritually lame, who are struggling. We need to do everything in our power to, to help them walk with God. So who do you know that needs encouragement this week? Who do you know who's weak in the faith? We're to find them and to encourage them. I mean, these two verses remind me of Jesus' instruction recorded in Matthew 7, where it says, you know, don't, don't go taking the plank out of your neighbor's eye, until you, or excuse me, taking the speck out of your neighbor's eye until you deal with the plank in your own eye. This idea, take responsibility for your own plank, find freedom in Christ, You'll have a lot of humility because it takes a lot of work to get planks out. But it'll also make you compassionate and intentional to then go and help someone who's got a splinter in their eye. Verse 15, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause and defile many. Friends, we're in this together. That's what it's saying. We don't want to see a single soul in this church forfeit the grace of God. We don't want bitterness or trouble to grow up in our church. Sometimes I get questions about church membership. This is what church membership is about. <laughs> I want to care for the people. We watch out for one another. We need each other. Did you know that zebras that stay close to the herd survive? But the ones that wander off alone get swallowed by the lions. And so we want to personally choose to stay in the herd, but also to help others in the herd. We, we commit to deal with the, the roots of bitterness in our own heart. But if we hear that a brother or sister in our church has a root of bitterness, we want to go, what's going on in your heart? What's happened? How can I encourage you? If we hear that there's any sort of trouble in the church, we don't rest until we pursue the bond of peace. A church member doesn't just come and take what they can get, right? If you're a part of a family, you eat the meal and you clean the table. 
Thus, members, we don't just consume sermons, songs, and studies. Like, we come to look out for others. So let me just pause and say, if you've been attending this church and you're not a member, would you prayerfully consider about saying, I'm going to be a member, I'm going to see to it that no one in this church stumbles. I'm going to be in this church for my own health and growth. I'm going to see to it that no one else stumbles. The reason why we have membership is the same reason we have uh, marriage. We say vows for when the days are hard. And so that's part of what church membership is. We're saying to each other, I'm in this. I'm in this on the hard days. I'm committed to you on the hard days. It is important and it is critical. How critical is this work? Look at how he ends. This is how critical it is. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau. For a single meal, he sold his inheritance. Verse 17, afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected, even though he sought it with tears. So do you need an example of what happens when a person squanders the grace of God? If so, it says, remember Esau. Esau was the son of the patriarch Isaac. God had placed Esau in the family that had been given great promises of God. And and what Esau did is he just spurned the promise. Maybe he doubted the promise. He certainly undervalued the promise, so much so that he traded it for a meal. His fleshly appetites were more important than the blessing of God. Or as one writer put it, physical appetites had meant more than spiritual privileges. And then the thing that strikes me, it says, and by the time Esau understood his mistake, it was too late. Which just says to me, brothers and sisters, we need to have eyes out for each other. If we see someone going the way of Esau, we need to step in as in loving as possible and say, over my dead body! You're selling your soul for a meal. You're giving up on your God for cultural acceptance. You're, you're giving up on your faith for a little more comfort. It takes guts to say, don't be godless. Don't be sexual immoral. It's not worth it. God is worth it. It was too late for Esau, which means it will be too late for some people. And with tears, they may regret their decisions. Jesus has a parable about that. Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man, he's pretty bummed out, but it's too late. And he's in hell. So brothers and sisters, for your own sake, don't forfeit the grace of God for some sexual morality and godlessness. It's not worth it. Instead, keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Brothers and sisters, let's run together. Let us suffer with one another. Let us take care of one another. Whatever the costs, we must press on together. Sometimes, I'm driving down the road, and I see people with bumper stickers, and they look like this. You got a picture of this bumper sticker? Yeah. Do you guys know what that is? It's the person driving the vehicle says that they successfully finished a 26.2-mile marathon. And so when I see that, I either uh, cry. <laughs> because I set out to run a 26.2-mile marathon, 26.2 mile marathon. 
But they don't give you a medal when your body cramps up at 22 miles and they put you in an ambulance. Because even though the ambulance made it to the finish line, they didn't give me a medal. I was there. (laughs) But I wonder if things would have been different if I would have run with someone. I wonder if it would have been different if someone would have been there, hey, your pace is too fast. I wonder if it would have been different if someone had said, you're not taking enough nutrients, you're not drinking enough water. I got tired. My body gave out, and I didn't finish the race. But I intend to finish this race with Jesus. First and foremost, because Jesus is the author and perfecter of my faith. Second, because I want to run it with you. I need you. We need each other. And friends, whenever you're tired, weary, and ready to give up, remember Jesus. But I hope by the grace of God, you are in a church and you can look and you can see that there's someone running with you. And they can say to you the types of things that we've seen all throughout the book of Hebrews. They're going to say, remember Jesus. He's greater than the angels. Remember Jesus. He's greater than Moses. Remember Jesus. He was the the final sacrifice for sin. Remember Jesus. Believe on Jesus. Jesus teaches us that suffering befits sonship. He models for us that there is always a cross before a crown. He demonstrates that faith is the sure road to victory. So believe, my friends, and believe and do not doubt. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And then let's run together. Father in heaven, I'm thankful for your mercies that are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room, and I pray, God, that you would come to their weary hearts today. You would peel back the curtain and they would see Jesus resurrected and reigning in heaven so that they would not grow weary and give up. Don't want them to lose heart. I pray that, Lord, by your grace, you would use the brothers and sisters in this room to to truly encourage one another, to pray for one another, to confess their sins to one another, uh, to to help uh, carry one another's burdens, to fulfill the law of Christ together. We need your help. We need your mercy. Thank you for the gift of the church. And yet all glory goes to the the Son of God who died for us and rose for us. In Jesus' name, amen.